When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. I've got a historical mystery for you tonight, Steve. So, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, he's the man credited with being the first man to fly over the North Pole. You've probably heard that name, haven't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, he did this in 1926, and it made headlines around the world. I mean, the feat made him a household name. Here's the thing. In 1926, things like this were pretty much on the honor system. I mean, there's nobody there at the North Pole to confirm you made it. It's really up to you to convince everyone that you did. Almost since the day Bird made that 1,500-mile journey, his claim has been disputed, and maybe never more so than in the past two decades after an archivist at Ohio State University turned up a long-lost diary that Bird kept on his flight with some suspicious entries. And if Bird wasn't the first man to fly to the pole, then Lincoln Ellsworth of Hudson, Ohio, was cheated out of a dream. I'm going with Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Already. Playing favorites. Right. You see, three days after Bird's historic flight, Lincoln Ellsworth was part of an expedition that was the second group to fly over the North Pole. So before we go any further, let me tell you about Lincoln Ellsworth, and then we'll get to that mysterious evidence that has just shaken up the historic record. Outside of Hudson and outside the world of polar exploration, the Ellsworth name might be a bit obscure, but the folks on Hudson aren't likely to forget it anytime soon. Lincoln's father, James Ellsworth, was born in Hudson and became a multimillionaire at the turn of the last century. He built a fortune in banking and coal mining. Ellsworth kept a farmhouse in Hudson, an estate he called Eva Mir after his wife Eva. But his business interests had him living most of the time in Chicago. He also had a villa in Italy, a castle in Switzerland, and a mansion on Park Avenue in New York. But no matter how far he traveled, James Ellsworth never forgot his roots. When a fire ravaged Hudson's business district, James led the effort to rebuild it. If you've been to Hudson, no doubt you've seen that iconic clock tower on the green. Just drove by it about... 20 minutes ago. Oh, well, there you go. He built that. 
And when Western Reserve Academy, the school he attended in his youth, struggled with financial problems, James stepped in to rescue it. There's a local elementary school called Evamere after the Ellsworth estate. And when Ellsworth died while in Italy, his remains were shipped back to Hudson to be buried at St. Mary's Cemetery. The town also memorializes the remarkable achievements of James' son, Lincoln, at Hudson High School, which took the nickname The Explorers. Did you know their nickname was The Explorers? I did not know that. It is. That's and it's for Lincoln. Now, Lincoln and his sister Claire were both born while their parents lived in Chicago. But when Lincoln was just eight years old, his mom, Eva, died. Papa James was busy building his empire, so he sent Lincoln and Claire to Hudson to live with their grandmother on the farm. Reportedly, Lincoln was a shy and lonely boy who spent his spare time fantasizing about far-off adventures. He once wrote to an Ohio congressman suggesting the government try to fly to the moon in a balloon. And if they managed to achieve such a thing, he, Lincoln, would like to be a passenger. Representative Benjamin Butterworth even wrote back saying that while the suggestion was praiseworthy, he feared that task was probably beyond Congress's ability. Where Lincoln soared in imagination, he plummeted in academics. When he arrived in Hudson, he was sent to the public schools. But when he was tested, teachers put him in the first reader group. It was such a deep embarrassment that he grew to hate school. And eventually, he cried until his father arranged for him to leave that school and attend his own alma mater, the private Western Reserve Academy. But young Lincoln couldn't make the grade there either. He ended up flunking out. So he was sent to finish high school at a boarding school in Pennsylvania. College didn't go any better. He flunked out of both Yale and Columbia. How did he get into Yale with the horrible grades? Do you need me to repeat what his father (laughs) was doing? (laughs) Yeah, he certainly had the money and the influence. (laughs) Anyway, in, in his autobiography, Lincoln equated school to jail. Truth is, he longed to be outside doing rugged, adventurous things. Once he realized this, he gave up on education. He took a job surveying for a railroad out west. He herded buffalo. He climbed mountains. He prospected for gold. All of this made Lincoln happy, but he was a big disappointment to his father. Here's a sentence in a wire story I found in 1925 that might have explained what James really wanted for his son. It said, Himself a man who had won great wealth, the dream of his life was that his son should join him in the enjoyment and luxury and peaceful centers of old world art and culture. But Lincoln clearly had no interest in luxury and comfort. Their relationship strained over this. But Lincoln found the courage to brave his father's disapproval one last time. He had yet another career choice he wanted to try, that of polar explorer. Can you imagine your kid coming home and saying, huh, guess what I want to do, Dad? (laughs) uh, Yeah, that's... Uh, that as a father, that would be a little, hey, I don't know if that's the way you want to go. Yeah. Lincoln had taken a trip to Alaska aboard a steamer ship and was mesmerized by the sights. He wrote in his journal, as far as the eye could reach stretched great masses of floating ice. How very lonely and desolate this waste of ice looks and feels. It fascinates me. 
He started reading everything he could find about polar explorers, and he came across a newspaper article that seemed to be inviting him to become one. By this time, the North Pole wasn't uncharted territory. Both poles had been reached by foot, by dog sled, and by ship. But in 1925, nobody had yet met the particular challenge of flying over either of the poles. A Norwegian explorer named Roald Amundsen wanted to be the first to the north, and the newspaper Lincoln found himself holding explained that Amundsen was looking for a partner who had deep pockets. Amundsen, by the way, already had a superlative to his name. He had been the first man to reach the South Pole. He achieved it by dog sled in 1912. Anyhow, this was Lincoln's chance. He had the drive, and he had the guts, and his dad had the money. I don't know if his dad's going to lend him the money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to wonder, because I would love to have been a fly on the wall when Lincoln paid his father a visit and asked for nearly $100,000 so that Lincoln could fly to the top of the world. In today's dollars, I know you like these comparisons. I do, I do. That would be like asking your pop for nearly $1.5 million for an airplane ticket. James Ellsworth, bless his heart, said yes. Well, at first. And so Lincoln made plans with Amundsen, but James came to regret his decision, and he started throwing obstacles in Lincoln's way. But he finally gave in. It was said that after James met Amundsen, he found his charisma just too hard to resist. And so on May 21, 1925, Lincoln Ellsworth and Amundsen made their first attempt at the pole. They were each equipped with a flying boat, a pilot, and a mechanic. And they left from Spitsbergen, Norway, the traditional jumping-off point for polar explorers. Taking an early flying machine to the planet's most frigid destination wasn't as easy as you might think it would be. Six hours into the flight, Amundsen's plane engine gave out. For the next month, the world wondered what had happened to the Amundsen-Ellsworth expedition. They should have landed in Alaska the same day they left Norway because they were just flying straight through, but they never did. Many presumed the explorers were dead. And sadly, James Ellsworth died on June 2nd, not knowing his son's fate. Oh, man. I'd like to think that when James passed away and crossed over, he looked back at Earth and said, oh, that's where you are, because his son wasn't dead. None of the six explorers were. Here's what happened. When Amundsen's plane engine failed, they made an emergency landing. Ellsworth's plane followed suit, but by the time they landed, the two planes were separated by three miles, three miles of ice. In those conditions, it took three days for the crews to find each other. Ellsworth's plane sunk, leaving the six men with the plane that had the engine failure. They spent the next four weeks repairing the engine and trying to create a 400-foot runway on a moving sheet of ice by using shovels and the stomps of their boots. Six times, the six men climbed aboard the remaining plane and started the engine, and six times, crashing ice flows undid their work. The night before their seventh attempt, 
Ellsworth had the watch. It was his job to patrol the ice they were on to make sure new cracks weren't forming. He recalled feeling the wind coming from the north, the same wind that had brought them in, and he considered it a good omen. That morning, the men woke up, climbed aboard the plane, and flew home. Amundsen told reporters that Ellsworth had saved the lives of his pilot and mechanic by pulling them from an icy current. And Ellsworth was something of a hero in the science world because throughout their month as castaways, he kept a meticulous meteorological record that offered an unprecedented look at daily conditions on the top of the world. This failed attempt to reach the North Pole did little to dissuade the explorers. A year later, they were ready to try again. This time, they found an Italian engineer named Umberto Nobile, who had designed a dirigible that looked like it might do the trick. So picture this, Steve. It's May of 1926, and Ellsworth, Amundsen, and Nobile are sitting in Spitsbergen, Norway, waiting for the dirigible to arrive so they can make their second run at the North Pole, when suddenly, Commander Richard Byrd, Amundsen's longtime polar nemesis, shows up with his own plane. Oh, no. You could only imagine the heartbreak on May 9 when Lincoln Ellsworth wrote in his journal, Wakened up at 2 a.m. by the roar of motors and cheers, it was Byrd starting for the pole. And so, Bird made his epic flight and won all the accolades that come with being the first at something. Amundsen told his crew to buck up. They were still undertaking their expedition for the science it could provide. And three days later, their flight was relatively uneventful as their new dirigible reached the geographic North Pole at 1.28 a.m. on May 12, 1926, which also happened to be Ellsworth's 46th birthday. Oh. Amundsen sadly died two years later. He had come out of retirement to try and rescue Nobile during another polar flight. Nobile survived. Amundsen disappeared in the sea. Oh, man. Yeah. But Lincoln Ellsworth would live on and win fame in his time. He continued to be a polar explorer. He led expeditions to the Antarctica in 1935. That made him the first man to fly across both poles. He took another trip in 1939, at which time he laid claim to hundreds of thousands of miles of Antarctica for the United States. It's ours now. And, well, I'm right kidding. now, actually, <laughs> lots of countries tried claiming claim it, it um, but today I believe they have most, for the most part, have dedicated it to science. Okay. So it really belongs to the world of science. Nice. Uh, but as a result of, of his efforts down there, there are several features in Antarctica named for him. Ellsworth Land, Mount Ellsworth, Lake Ellsworth, and Ellsworth Islands. Hmm. Ellsworth died in New York in 1951 at the age of 71. He had won the Medal of Honor and even had a commemorative stamp issued after him. And, like his father, his remains were returned to Hudson, Ohio, and buried at St. Mary's Cemetery. Now... To the mystery. Was the Amundsen Ellsworth expedition the first to fly to the North Pole after all? In the 1990s, Ohio State University's Bird Polar Research Institute, one of the largest centers devoted to modern study of everything polar related, released some intriguing evidence. 
The clues were in Bird's own diary, which had been lost for decades, until an archivist at OSU found it in a mislabeled box among a vast collection of the explorer's memorabilia. Now, don't miss a pretty interesting point here. Yes, the center is in Ohio, and Ellsworth had lived in Ohio, but this wasn't a case of OSU playing favorites. The school center is named for and devoted to Richard Byrd. And yet they were so interested in historical accuracy that they invited Dennis Rollins, a noted navigational expert and polar exploration historian, to review the diary and interpret it. So good for them. Now, the diary recorded navigational calculations, but also written communications between Byrd and his pilot because the engine was too noisy for them to hear each other speak. At one point in the diary, Bird wrote to his pilot that there was an oil leak and asked if he thought that they would get back okay. Some who studied the diary thought it interesting that Bird didn't specifically ask if the pilot thought they could make it to the pole, only if they could make it back. Also interesting, Bird later said the oil leak occurred when the plane was still an hour from the North Pole and that at that time he was 99% sure they wouldn't make it. Hmm. Knowing Bird felt that way, that conversation starts sounding more like two men who were deciding to turn back early. Then there was another scribbled conversation between Bird and his pilot. This written exchange had been erased, but it was still discernible. Bird asked his pilot, How long were we gone before we turned around? The pilot wrote back, Eight and a half hours. Again, it was what Bird didn't say that bothered the experts. Why wouldn't Bird say, how long were we gone before we reached the pole? Just asking how long they had been gone in general sounded like perhaps he wanted to be sure they were gone long enough right, to, to make their claim. Mm. Yes, exactly. But possibly most damning of all, the diary contained an erased but still readable sextant reading that put Bird 165 miles south of where he needed to be. The reading that was written over the erased data supported that Bird had reached the pole, but the data that was erased would have put Bird about two hours short of reaching his goal. It may be that Lincoln Ellsworth himself had suspected all along that Bird wasn't the first for completely other reasons. Get this, before Bird took off for the pole, he knew Amundsen and Ellsworth would want proof he'd beaten them to the punch, so he agreed to drop hundreds of American flags on the pole for them to find. When Ellsworth and friends got to the pole three days later, there were no flags to be found. It might also be worth noting that the flight of Ellsworth, Amundsen, and Nobile returned with very precise navigational fixes, and that its success in reaching the pole has never been questioned. But the, of course, birds has been. Absolutely. Well, that's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. And may all of your mysteries have happy endings.
Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.